What are you passionate about? My first answer would be chocolate cake, but other than that, um, by that I mean, you know, what, what is it? What you know, what is it that really gets you going? Now, this, you know, of course, happens a lot of different ways. It can get you going as excited in a good way, when. Uh, you know, when some of the kids, you know, get to go, uh, they're pretty excited, you know, in a good way when, uh, you know, when, when we, something nice happens, uh, you know, we can get excited in a good way, but you know, or what is it that, what is it that gets you going and, and, uh, makes you, you know, would like to lash out. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, I would say I'm passionate about woodworking and building things. Cause I, I just really enjoy that. And I enjoy building things, and you know, I can I can get caught up in a project, and I can work all day on something, and just not even stop to eat. It just doesn't, you know, because what I'm working on, what I'm what I'm building is, I just enjoy that. I enjoy building things, and and um, you know, putting things putting things together, and it's just it's just kind of fun. I you know, I like that. Um, I would also say, you know, I, I could I could build things all day long. I mean, you know, if uh, you know, I've done that at uh, you know different times, and I start you know in the morning, and then when I was putting the deck on the side up at the parsonage there, and Jenny stuck her head out about ten o'clock, said, "You know, we have neighbors." <laughs> said they could build their own deck. <laughs> you know, um, you know, but we, yeah, I, this is one of those things. I, I just kind of get into it, and I, I could do that all day. I could also say that I'm passionate about alcohol and drug use. Now, not passionate in the fact that I could do that all day, but passionate in the fact that, um, you know, why would you want to do that to your body? I mean, that's just the thing that comes to my mind, you know. Why, why would you want to do that to yourself? You know, why, why is that? I, I, I've seen it ruin so many lives, and, um, and, I, and I, I, just, I just think about that. So now I could give you a longer list of things that, make me want to lash out and tick me off a little bit, but uh, you kind of get the idea. You have your own list. Uh, you have those things that, you know, can, can get you going. Now, the challenge for us is to focus our passions in a way that honors God, even those passions that make you want to lash out, even those passions that make you want to give somebody a punch in the throat. You know, even those, even those passions, you know, how can we use those to honor God? Let's pray, and then we're going to look at the apostle that brought these thoughts to mind. Father, thank you that you have uh, given us passion, that, you, have, that, you, have, that you stir us up with different things. You have made us in a way that stirs us, that gets us going. Father, we can get excited in a good way about things. We can also get excited in a, well, a destructive way. How can we use this passion that you've given us to motivate us to be more yours, to be your people, to uh, live in a way that really brings more glory and honor to you and not just simply indulging our own uh, excitement or expressing our own frustration. So guide our thoughts as we look, as we think of how you dealt with your apostles and how you continue to refine them and guide them and direct them. Refine us, guide us and direct us too through your word.
and through the things you've done and are doing in our life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you might think we're looking at Peter again. We, uh, we looked at Peter a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, today, we're actually looking at the Apostle James. Now, you may not have thought of James as a very passionate one, but I think you may change your mind as we actually look and see a little bit what God has to say, what he's told us about him. So what can we learn about, what can we learn for our living? Really, that's kind of, yeah, you've probably noticed when I preach, I kind of like to do it more on an applicational level as opposed to just dumping out information. Um, you know, what can we learn? You know, what difference does it make as we learn and see how Jesus worked to refine James? Uh, James most often paired with his brother, John. John is more well-known while well, he wrote a few books in the Bible. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a little bit more well-known than James has, <clears throat> excuse me, than James is. Uh, they're, uh, when they're mentioned, when uh, James and John are mentioned uh, together in Scripture, James is always listed first. Uh, that certainly gives the impression, particularly given their society and culture, that uh, he was probably the older of the two. Uh, they are sometimes referred to as the sons of Zebedee. It seems Zebedee must have been well-known because if you're going to refer to somebody as the sons of Zebedee, the, the implication there is you know who Zebedee is. You know, otherwise, uh, you know, why even lay it out there? Why even say it? Uh, Zebedee, it seems, was a man of great wealth. If you notice in Mark when uh, Jesus is, Mark records Jesus calling his, some of his disciples, it says immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, if Zebedee had a fishing business that was to the point where he could hire, where he could hire on other individuals, that's, that's a pretty well-off uh, thing, particularly in their society. Uh, their society a lot of times and a lot of people just was more subsistence, you know, that they, they work today so they could eat today. If they, uh, you know, didn't work tomorrow, they may not eat tomorrow. That's kind of how they lived. And here, uh, Zebedee, though, had enough wherewithal to be able to hire men. And they also had some apparent ranking in society where they were well known because when uh, Jesus is arrested, one of the things we read, it says, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. Now, John doesn't mention himself in his, in his gospel. Uh, he sometimes refers to uh, the disciple whom Peter loved, or as you see here, another disciple. When you compare the gospel records, you see that other disciple was John himself. So here, meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple, his brother John. Uh, and that disciple, it says, was an acquaintance. Uh, well, not Peter's brother, James' brother, John. Uh, that disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So he knew that he was acquainted with the high priest. So he went into uh, the high priest's courtyard. Now, you know, as sometimes can happen, you forget, you know, just because you know it and can go somewhere doesn't mean everybody can. So it says, uh, Peter, though, remained standing outside by the door because, you know, he wasn't let in there. Uh, so the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl at the doorkeeper, and then he was able to bring Peter in. So uh, Zebedee apparently was a high enough standing where they had an acquaintance with the high priest and uh, gains access there. Now, when you look at the different lists of apostles that are given in Scripture, uh, James is mentioned right after Peter in a couple of those lists there. Uh, that uh, we have good reason, not only that, but others, as we'll be looking at too, to consider that you know maybe uh, he might have he was he was most likely a very influential leader 
in that group at all, uh, as well. I mean, he was in that group of the inner three that seemed to be present at some of the events that others were not, such as the raising of Jairus' daughter. Uh, Jesus left the others outside and brought in uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, and also at the Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John again are there when they went to the Mount of Olives to pray uh, again before Jesus arrests. It says he brought a, there was a group that he brought closer, and it seems that group again is made up of uh, Peter, James, and John. Um, now James and John were very passionate individuals, very enthusiastic about things. You'll remember it says that he appointed the twelve. Uh, to Simon, he gave the name Peter, and to James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Bonerges, which is sons of thunder. What a, uh, If you're going to have a nickname, you know, it may as well be a cool one, and, you know, uh, Rocky, Thor, Wolf, the Hammer, sons of thunder, what, I mean, that, you may as well have a good one. It's a lot better than Twinkle, Chubbs the nose or son of Hitler, um, you know, it's, it's a lot. So here, you know, you ever wondered what nickname Jesus might give you? Uh, just a thought for you there. Um, what I was hoping as I was thinking about this is th- that I needed to change a few things because I don't want him to give me the name, hey, whiner, you know, um, or uh, hey, complainer, you know, or uh, something like that. Hey, Mr. Negative, you know, I, I, that's, those aren't the names you want, you know. And uh, so anyway, just a thought for you there. Now, these guys, James, John, they, they stood out from the crowd of even the 12 men that Jesus chose as apostles. It says he gathered, he had this larger group, and out of that he called 12 in particular. Uh, and it seems, again, about halfway through his ministry there probably, uh, they were all following along, and he calls out the 12, and he calls them here sons of thunder. Now, that's not used anywhere else in Scripture. This is really the only place in Scripture that it appears. Um, maybe Jesus used it as a gentle rebuke, you know, to kind of direct them to tone things down a little bit. You know, we're not, we're not told exactly how we used it. We're just kind of left uh, to our own thoughts on that. You know, maybe they were letting their passionate personalities uh, lead them and guide them and take them maybe where they shouldn't be going. Uh, that's something for us to remember, you know, our animated passion. It can work both in a positive and a negative way. It can work in a positive way because that, that, that passion of yours, that animation, that passion can work to push you higher, to push you, you know, even further. That when you get excited about something, like I told you, you know, I, I enjoy building things and I build things that, you know, I've not built before because I enjoy building things and it doesn't bother me to mess up, you know, and, and, and to redo some things. Now, not my favorite, but you do it if you have to. You see, well, you have that. So that passion can push you higher, but that passion can also um, be used to take you to places you shouldn't go because I've had my passion take me to places that I shouldn't go to mistreat people, to lash out, to say things I never should say. And we need to be careful about that. Nehemiah was a man who served God with passion. I'm going to let you decide whether it was positive or negative. Nehemiah ministered and, uh, to those who were called back uh, to the land and, and, and leading and, and calling during a time where it wasn't a high point in Israel's 
a life. And part of what we read, it says, In those days, uh, did Nehemiah writing, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. This is a big deal. They were told, you know, about and warned about um, not intermarrying and not mixing with the people among them and the people around them right from the very beginning. And that didn't change because God wanted their focus on him and didn't want them getting dragged away and dragged aside. Well, then what happened, and here it is, I rebuked them. I cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for yourselves. Now, Nehemiah was outraged. He was outraged here by the decision of his fellow Israelites to ignore God. And they ignored God and God's direction. They married women who worshipped idols. And then they taught, they, they picked up that worshipping idols themselves and taught their children to follow idols. Passion always motivates action. It motivates action. In Nehemiah's case, it motivated him to rebuke them, curse them, beat some of the men, pull out their hair, and force them to take an oath. And I thought, I would have liked to have seen that, not on myself, but, you know, just a witness of him doing this to somebody else. I have never, um, I've never forced anyone to take an oath before God. Um, I can't say I've never done some of the other things. But, uh, you know, that's a, a, um, that was a different zeal. It wasn't a zeal, you know, causing me to pursue God. Uh, we, you know, we, we can sometimes do really stupid things. We need to exercise caution, you know, when it, when it comes to the actions we, that it motivates. Our passion is no excuse for sin. It's no excuse for sin. You know, our, our passion, it, it really isn't. We're called to be like Jesus. Jesus was passionate, and yet in his passion, you know, he, he didn't sin. He was passionate when he, drove out the, when he drove out the merchants from the temple. It says the Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords... Passion here. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex. Could you just see as if you're one of, one of his, one of his disciples and you're walking along with Jesus and all of a sudden you notice he sits down and he picks up these and he starts making a whip. Now you know what a whip looks like. You've seen it before. And I just thought, what would be going through? What would be going through their heads? You know, so he makes a whip out of course. It says, and he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep, uh, with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, passion for your house will consume me. Well, he didn't curse them or pull out their hair, but he did make clear, he did make clear what God had called them to. 
You see, Nehemiah was a prophet. Jesus came as prophet, priest, and king. You know, you see him fulfilling all of these responsibilities. A prophet most often is calling God's people back to be God's people. And this is exactly what his passion was calling was, was calling them to. Very animated. Elijah also served with passion. One example was uh, King, uh, when King Isaiah, uh, he sent messengers to consult idols. I was just reading this in, in the Old Testament uh, the week before I started pulling this sermon together. And, you know, sometimes you read things and you just think, what were you thinking? Whatever. What? What in your what in your walk with God ever made you think that would be a good idea? So he he's going to go and he he sends messengers, you know, to consult idols. These messengers that he sends, Elijah the prophet, he stops them and and you know so and he sends them back to Isaiah and and you know and and with Isaiah there, uh, you know, and he says, "Who sent you back?" And they describe him. And he says, it's Elijah. And so he sends, it says, uh, you know, uh, he, he gets, calls a captain uh, of, a, of a guard and he sends this guy with 50 soldiers to go, uh, go get Elijah. Elijah wasn't hiding. He was up on the mountaintop where they could all see him. And so he goes and they, they approach him and it says, you know, that when the captain comes and he calls Elijah down, it says, Elijah responded to the captain of 50. If I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Well, you know, not to be thwarted, some people learn slowly, particularly when they're the ones, not the ones, you know, becoming, you know, post-toasties here. They, so Ahaziah sends out a second group of soldiers Another captain and 50 more soldiers, same thing happens. They see, you know, they see Elijah up there and they say, Elijah, come on down. You know, we're, you, we're, you're, you're gonna, we're taking you in, is, you know, what. And Elijah says the same thing. If I'm, the, if I'm this man of God, then may fire come down and, you know, and toast your marshmallows. And that's exactly, you know, then that's exactly what happens, you know, the second time. Ahaziah, you know, because some people learn slowly, sends a third group out there, a third unit of soldiers again with 50 men. Now their leader here was, you know, a little bit more on the ball than, than the king who sent him. And when he gets there, he begs Elijah for mercy instead of demanding that Elijah obey him. He begs Elijah for mercy, says, dude, please. So, you know, it's a paraphrase. Please don't fry our cookies because, you know, we, you know, that's just not what, what, what this is about. We didn't want to do that, you know. And, and so God directs Elijah to go with the soldiers. And so Elijah goes with the soldiers and he confronts King Isaiah and he tells him that he's going to die for what he did. Now, that is not the message that you want to be given to a king who is ticked off with you already. You know, and to go in there and tell them, you're going to die. You know what you did? That was stupid, and you are going to die. You know, and that's just not what you would want to say to him. But Elijah was passionate. James was passionate. 
but sometimes that passion takes us where we shouldn't go. Luke chapter 9, it says, When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he was determined to journey to Jerusalem. This is Jesus, is, you know, he knows his calling. He is not trying to sidestep it at all. He is stepping right into what God, you know, what he and the Father had set up and called him to. And so he sent messengers ahead of him. That's a, Jesus sent messengers ahead of himself there. On the way, they entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. You see, he wasn't just going to stop there. He was going to go through to Jerusalem, and they didn't like that. So when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. So Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for his final Passover meal with his apostles. They didn't know it was the final one. Jesus did. He's traveling to to Jerusalem. The quickest way there is to go through Samaria. That's the quickest way for them a lot of times. But being a good Jew, they wouldn't do that. What they would do instead is they would take the longer route and go around Samaria because they didn't want to have to... We're not even going to grace them with our presence, you know. And so they would go and they had to cross the... You know, they'd have to cross the river three times instead of just one time so that they could bypass Samaria altogether. So Jesus, though, very unusual for a Jew to choose to do, but he's done, he did it before. He went there, John chapter 4, he's at the well with the Samaritan woman. You know, he's done this before. The Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews, you know, because they were considered half-breed idol worshipers. This dates back all the way in the, into the book of Second Kings, an event found uh, during the Assyrian captivity. This is what it says. It says, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, uh, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and, and Sepharim, and settled them in the place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. The settlers took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. When they first lived there, they did not fear Yahweh. So the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The settlers spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations that you have deported and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the requirements of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them that are killing them because the people don't know the requirements of the God of the land. You see, there's, that's how they saw the God of the land. You see, and if they went to a different land, then they would think it was a different God. They weren't realizing that God is God. And these other guys, well, they were hunks of wood, you know, or stuff. But anyway, uh, it says, Then the king of, of Syria issued a command, Send back one of the priests that you deported. Have him go and live there so that he can teach them the requirements of the God of the land. That would be one of God's priests. Uh, So one of the priests that they had deported came and lived in Bethel, and he began to teach them how they should fear Yahweh. But the people of each nation were still making their own gods in the cities where they lived and putting them in the shrines of the high places that the people of Samaria had made. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, the Avites uh, made Nibhaz and, and Tartak, the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of the Sephirvim. They feared the Lord, but they also pointed from, from their number of priests to serve them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, but they also 
worshipped their own gods according to the custom of the nations where they had been deported from. The Samaritans developed their own religion, their own sacrifices, even their own, their own temple. All, that's what Jesus, that discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And she said, you worship in Jerusalem. We say on this mountain. You say on that mountain. We do. Because they set up their, their a whole system of their own instead of following what God had to say. And it was all heavily influenced by the worship of false gods that the new people had brought into the land. The other Jews, they did not intermarry and they rejected the Samaritans who did intermarry. And they, they, you know, that's the background when Jesus and his, you know, his apostles come through Samaria. That hatred that had gone on for hundreds of years, Jesus had repeatedly shown the message, you know, that his message was for the Samaritans as well as for the Jew. He healed a Samaritan of leprosy and he commended that man when that man came back to thank him. He, ex- he accepted water from a Samaritan woman at the well and told her that he was the true water of life. And then he stayed in that town, it says, in that Samaritan village for two days sharing his message. Jesus made a Samaritan the hero of one of his best-known parables. You know, later he would tell his disciples to preach the gospel, you know, to make it known in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. And he told them they would be going through Samaria. So Jesus is traveling through Samaria with his apostles, uh, you know, the same Samaritans, uh, you know, that the apostles rejected. And the Samaritans now reject the apostles and Jesus. Now, among the apostles there, the accepted Jewish response took control and their passion took control and they were ticked off at the Samaritans. No love lost there for the people you know, of Samaria. So James and John stirred in their passion and they said, shall we call down fire from heaven and roast these guys? Well, there's a footnote in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, English Standard and the NIV. It tells you that some of these manuscripts say that, you know, they were thinking of when Elijah called down fire from heaven. Now, should we call down fire as Elijah did? Should we, should we, you know, should we do that? It's a little bit arrogant statement for them to make. Do you want us to call down fire? They didn't have the power to call down fire from heaven. That wasn't their prerogative. They didn't have that, 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 that power or that authority at all. Jesus tells them that their passion was, was misguided, probably because it was motivated and directed there by hatred for the Samaritans in general. Not the love and concern that they had seen Jesus exhibit toward the Samaritans. They, they saw Jesus over and over exhibit love and care for those Samaritans, and that's not the, what they chose. Jesus told them he came to seek and to save who was lost, and in their minds there was no one more lost than the Samaritans. Their passion against the offense toward Jesus was good. It was admirable. That term we like to use, you know, our righteous anger or our righteous indignation, that can lead us into trouble. Because what we do sometimes is we use that as an excuse. And what we often do instead is we often respond with unrighteous vengeance. 
That's how we too often respond. Serve with passion, but passion directed by God. Not directed by your hormones, not directed by your anger, not directed by your frustrations, but passion directed by God. We can too easily get, get carried away by our passions and respond in ways that we should never be doing and respond with words that we should never be saying. Several years after this incident where Jesus is there with James and John and James and John want to roast their cookies, uh, several years after that, the, the church had grown Jesus told him to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the rest of the world. Philip, one of the first deacons that was appointed in the church, he was the one who brought the gospel to Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. This was huge. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs that he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. It's quite possible. In fact, I would say even probable that some of those who responded to Philip's message were the same ones who rejected Jesus and the apostles when they were coming through. What if they would have been burned alive then and not be here for that time? What if they would have been treated in the way James and John thought were appropriate instead of treated with God's love? Another memorable incident with James and John uh, show us there unrefined passion caused them to be possibly, well, a, a little overconfident, a little overambitious. In Matthew chapter 20, we're familiar with this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want, he asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right, the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Look who he's talking to here. Look who he's talking to. He's talking to James and John. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? We are able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. What brass? I mean, really, what what utter nerve you know, here to think this. As, as impetuous as these guys were, you know, you, 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 I'm not sure why they had their mother approach Jesus instead of simply trying to corner him themselves. You know, that wasn't beyond these guys. Uh, but when you compare Matthew's account here uh, with Mark's viewpoint on the account, uh, it becomes clear that James and John were the one who motivated this rather than their mother. It didn't originate with mom. It originated with James and John. And this is what you see here, Jesus answering and turning and answering specifically to them. 
And also, as you compare gospel accounts, you see that, you know, Mrs. Zebedee here, uh, th- that was Salome, the one, the one of the women who followed Jesus and supported his ministry. That she was one of, that she was one of those women. So she was known to Jesus. They, you know, they, they, there was a familiarity there. She was, it wasn't just this stranger coming up and saying, oh, let me talk to you about my boys. That wasn't it at all. Now, shortly before this, David read this morning, what, in the passage David read this morning from Matthew 19, uh, you know, part of what he read, this is, this is what they heard just a little before this. Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It seems James and John wanted to make sure they had a good seat. About right next to you there, Jesus. 12 tribes, you know, the 12 thrones, we can get right, right there. You need a good right-hand man. And, you know, my brother, could be, he could be your lefty. But, you know, we, we, we need this. Jesus replied to them in Matthew 20 as, you know, as they come and they come with their mother and, and make this appeal there, uh, you know, and, and he tells them that they would indeed drink the cup that he did. It really was a reminder to them that suffering precedes glory. We don't like that part. Suffering was going to come first. You see, a huge part of our passion is submitting our passion to God before we act. To submit it to Him before we act. So that He can then focus our passion to serve His purposes. Not so that we can just blow off steam. Not so, sometimes we, we, you know, we respond from our passion just because it'll make us feel better. But what we do is we, if we submit it to God, our, our passion, you know, submit that to him before we act, he can focus that passion. Sometimes, we, you know, we don't want to do that because we think he's going to pour cold water on it. No, no, sometimes you know what he might do? He might poke the fire and direct you in the proper way. Direct you in, in, in a good way. You know, fire, you know, properly directed is a good thing. Um, you catch your house on fire, it's not a good thing. But you're going to go home, and what are you going to do? You're going to turn fire on underneath a pot, and you're going to cook. We're, you know, we're, we're here in a building that's being heated because there's fire downstairs in this little box that's heating up the water to come up to warm up this room. When it's directed and used in a proper way, it can do great things. You forge steel, you know, by you put it in the fire and you pump it and you and you stir that fire up, and then you can pound that into usable things. You take your you take that passion, you submit that passion to Jesus, and He will do more with it than you could ever do with it. Let Him use it in His way. Let Him focus your passion to serve His purpose. Instead of just running off your energy there. You know, we want to be acting from God's direction, not from our passion. Because our, too, our, our passion is too often tainted by less than holy responses. We too often get that mixed in there. The end of James' story is recorded for us in Scripture. It came about 14 years after this earlier conversation with Jesus. It says, about that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. 
And he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. This is the one place in Scripture where James appears without his brother John. We're given the facts. We're not given the details here. Killing him with the sword most likely means that he was beheaded. Intentionally. Dramatically staged in front of a crowd because he had a purpose with this. James' death is the only one of the apostles actually recorded in the Bible. The others we look at church history and church historians and tradition and see what it is. But here it seems that James' passion continued to be very evident because when Herod wanted to stop the church, he chose James as the leader to kill to intimidate the rest of them into silence. The question is sometimes asked, if you were put on trial, accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence from your life to convict you? Well, for James, the answer was a very clear yes. For us, live your life. Live your life so that others will know that your relationship with Christ Jesus is the guiding factor in all you do. Even in the way you express your passions. That even as you passionately follow God, that you submit that passion to him for him to refine and for him to direct. Your passion focused by the Lord. Not simply your passion, but your passion focused by your relationship with Christ being that guiding factor in all you do. Let's pray. Father, you have indeed given us passion. You've given us passionate people in our lives. And we think about them and we think sometimes about what motivates them. And we know sometimes uh, we know people whose passion motivates them in destructive ways. And we've seen that in our own lives sometimes. And Father, that's not to be among your people. That's not to be how we respond. That's not to be how we use the passion that you've given us. Father, remind us to submit our passions to you. Not to use that excuse of our righteous anger, our righteous indignation. Father, our response needs to be righteous as well. It needs to be holy. It needs to be honorable. It needs to lift you up. It needs to be refined by you. We need you to stoke our fire. Lord, remind us of that. When anger flares, when excitement runs wild. Oh, Lord. Help us to bring it to you. Help us to submit it to you. To use for your glory and your honor, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.